My name is Mike Sayers, and I will be your sermonator for the evening. Um, and we continue in our Hot Topic series. This week, uh, the Hot Topic is uh, Scum Hot Sauce. No, I'm just... <laughs> the Hot Topic is God's Wrath and God's Love. God's Wrath and God's Love. Now, a lot of people have a hard time, you know, when they think about God as Father because Dad was a jerk. Or as one guy I heard about whose father just died said, well, you know, my dad was half asshole. But my, my dad was good. I really had a great dad. And um, love and wrath were mixed together in my dad in a good way. I, I never got beat as a child, but I was disciplined. And I remember, I think it was the first time I really remember being disciplined I was four years old. I knew I had to be four because we hadn't moved from our house on Brussels Street yet. And I was having a conversation with my best friend, Brian, who was across the street, directly across the street from me, on little Brussels Street. And Brian said something that annoyed me. And so for some reason I thought, I'm going to push Brian down because obviously my verbal skills were not quite developed and I didn't have a very good answer, so pushing him down seemed like a pretty good rejoinder. So I pushed him down. He fell onto the sidewalk. He cried. He went across the street back home. I went back into my house. Well, not really knowing how these things work at four, Brian's mom who was good friends with my mom, told my mom what happened. And my mother looked at me and she uttered those fateful words, you just wait until, what? Your father gets home, right. And so my dad came home, found out what happened, heard my side of the story, which wasn't all that really compelling. <laughs> and proceeded to give me my first recollection of a spanking. Now my dad was a very loving man, very Greek in the display of his affections. So I knew that shortly thereafter there would be hugs and there would be kisses, but when the discipline was being meted out, it was not pleasant. I was experiencing my father's wrath. Now, he wasn't off the handle angry. I mean, how could you be? Is something as stupid as this. He just decided, you're going to see the dark side of my love at this particular moment. And, and even though I think uh, for those of us who had good fathers, Trying to balance out a God of wrath and a God of love is not so difficult. It still isn't a walk in the park because we kind of grow up knowing that we're not exactly everything that God expects. And the farther you go in Christianity, if you're like me, that the more you know you screw up on a daily basis. If you're not screwing up 
in deed, then you're screwing up in word. If you're not screwing up in word, you're screwing up in thought. And if you're not screwing up in those ways, you're screwing up in things that you ought to do that you're not doing. So you understand after a while that all of us is under the threat of punishment from God. I don't have a problem with this. I understand. I'm a jerk. I remember this uh, one t-shirt, this cartoon, where there were three dudes with bowling bags, and they're all cowering with their, their eyes looking up to heaven, but their hands are shielding their heads. And the caption is, Wallace Pooley and his bowling mates momentarily forget the mercies of God. I honestly do think that if we thought about it, we would realize that we are in danger of annihilation every day from the hands of a very, very righteous God. All right. Let's uh, look at a definition of, of wrath. I got this from J.I. Packer. Wrath is an old English word defined in my dictionary as, quote, deep, intense anger and indignation. Anger is defined as stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult. Indignation as righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness. Such is wrath. And wrath, the Bible tells us, is an attribute of God. God, if he is perfect, must be wrathful against we, his rebel image bearers, because we offend him on a regular basis. Just as it was offensive for me to push Brian Harple down on the sidewalk, it is offensive to God when you utter a word in contempt of your neighbor, your spouse, your child, your parent. When you forget to do the good things you ought to be doing, and then when it comes to relationship with Him, when you forget to acknowledge Him as God, reverence Him as God, consider Him holy and set apart, and have no other idols before Him. He's right to be angry. We're screwing up. We're hurting ourselves. We're hurting our relationship with Him. We're hurting others around us. But God and His perfections must also be loving toward we, rebel image bearers, because he's that kind of God. Just so you know, the Bible says that God is love, right? God is love. The Apostle John talks about it a lot. And we know that John says God is agape love. We also know that Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is patient, love is kind, never quick to take offense, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, love never fails. And the same word there, agape, is used for God as in John. So we know God is all these things. He's loving, but he's wrathful. They're all mixed up into one. 
So we have a problem on our hands. We're going to go through a few scriptures. I think they're going to mess with your mind a bit. 2 Kings 2.24. This is about the prophet Elisha. He, Elisha, turned around, looked at them, these boys who were taunting him, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. How do you deal with this as a believer in a loving God? Here's these boys, and they're teasing Elisha because he's bald and because he probably looks funny other than that. And Elisha turns around and calls down a curse from heaven on them. God answers his prayer in the form of a curse and sends a she-bear out of the woods to attack the boys. Forty-two of them get mauled. This is the same God who, in the form of Jesus Christ, who was totally God, totally man, we're told. 1 Peter 2.23 when they had hurled insults at him, he, Jesus, did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The Apostle Peter tells us about Jesus' passion. That when Jesus is insulted, when he's mocked, when he's ridiculed, when he's spat upon, when he's flogged, when he's played with, He just remains silent as a sheep before its shearers and does not retaliate. Is this the same God we're talking about? Is it possible that these two attributes could be rolled into the same God? Let's go to Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus teaches. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to shine, to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's cool. That's great. But this is the same God who gave these orders to the Israelites when they were coming into the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua 11, verses 19 through 21. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle, for it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. You starting to get uncomfortable? Because I am. And just to make sure, this is the dichotomy, it's in the Bible. Let's go to Psalm 94, verse 1. The psalmist says, the Lord is a God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth. In other words, come, do your vengeance thing. Have it with my enemies. And then the Apostle John, the Apostle of love in 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, says this about the same God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God 
is love. You're probably thinking right now, does God have like borderline personality disorder or something? Like what is going on? Does he just flip at the snap of a finger? Whether he's going to be angry or whether he's going to be loving, is that what's going on? Because it sure seems like things are weird. Now, I probably checked out, I checked out the limit of books from the seminary library, which is five or six. I borrowed a book from Dr. Blomberg. I read several articles online and then borrowed a book from Evan Perkins as well in preparation for this sermon. And let me tell you that um, so far I'm doing a crappy job because uh, there's so much to cover that today is going to be barely an introduction this whole topic. So it warrants further study. You know, if you want to borrow a book, I got them from the seminary library. You can come, you know, as long as I'll let me borrow it, I'll let you borrow it, but then you better well get it back to me or you may experience the wrath of Mike Sayers. You know, I'll probably take you out to eat and then, you know, hit you or something. <laughs> Love, wrath, all wrapped up in the same guy. I know, it's kind of weird. Hey, but one of the best things that I found was actually in a book by Don Carson, D.A. Carson. And I'm just going to read you this. Forgive me, but honestly, I couldn't say it any better. And, I, and, and, and it's, it's well said. I know it's well said because not only did I pick it out, but online there must have been five or six other people who picked out this passage to post on their blogs. So I'm going, okay, I'll just read it to you. How then do God's love and his wrath relate to each other? One evangelical cliche has it that God hates sin but loves the sinner. You guys heard that before? Hate the sin but love the sinner? Yeah, you've heard it. I think, um, didn't uh, um, Calvin and Hobbes, didn't, <laughs> didn't uh, Calvin have that sign, you know, on the front porch uh, waiting for his dad to come home one day and a big placard? You guys remember that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon? Obviously, I related, so I thought it was hilarious. Dad coming home, exactly. Yeah. There is a small element of truth in these words. God has nothing but hate for the sin, but this cannot be said with respect to the, how God sees the sinner. Nevertheless, the cliche is false on the face of it and should be abandoned. Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms alone, the psalmist states that God hates the sinner and his wrath is on the liar and so forth. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests on both the sin, Romans 1, and the sinner, Romans 1, Romans 2, John chapter 3. Our problem in part is that in human experience, Wrath and love normally abide in mutual exclusive compartments. Love drives wrath out, and wrath drives love out. We come closest to bringing them together, perhaps, in our response to a wayward act by one of our children, but normally we do not think that a wrathful person is loving. 
But this is not the way it is with God. God's wrath is not an implacable blind rage, however emotional it may be. It is an entirely reasonable and willed response to offenses against his holiness. I'm going to point out the example of my father. My father was not in a blind rage when he spanked me for the first time. It was a calculated, measured response in order to produce a reaction in me toward greater holiness. At the same time, God's love wells up amidst his perfections and is not generated by the loveliness of the loved. In other words, God loves us even though we are unlovable. That is agape love, right? 1 Corinthians 13, the promises we make at weddings are about loving someone when they are unlovable. But normally we're thinking, this is the way I want to be loved, without realizing that we are the ones who have to do that as well. Thus, there is nothing intrinsically impossible about the wrath and love of God being directed toward the same individual or people at once. God, in his perfections, must be wrathful against his rebel image bearers, for they have offended him. God, in his perfections, must be loving toward his rebel image bearers, for he is that kind of God. Two other misconceptions calculate widely, even in circles of confessional Christianity. The first is that in the Old Testament, God's wrath is more strikingly transparent than his love. While in the New Testament, though doubtless a residue of wrath remains, a gentleness takes over and softens the darker period. God's love is now richer than his wrath. After all, Jesus taught his disciples to love their enemies and turn the other cheek. Did you notice that in the list of scriptures I had behind me, the loving verse was from the New Testament and the vengeful verse was from the Old Testament. Did you realize that? But nothing could be further than the truth, than this reading of the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. One suspects that the reason this formula has any credibility at all is that the manifestation of God's wrath in the Old Testament is primarily in temporal categories. Temporal means time-constrained categories. So God's wrath in the Old Testament is basically measured in a specified time. Famine, for example. Famines don't go on forever. Plagues. Sieges. Wars. Slaughter. In the here and now, those images have a greater impact than what the New Testament says with its focus on wrath in the afterlife. In other words, we're not as close to the afterlife. We don't really think about it all that often. We can't imagine it, and so therefore it just seems farther away. Although in the New Testament, God's wrath is confined to some time after the judgment. Jesus, after all, is the one who in the New Testament speaks most frequently and most colorfully about hell. Did you know that Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about prayer even? The apostolic writings offer little support of the view that a kinder, gentler God services in the New Testament at this stage in redemptive history. The reality is that the Old Testament displays the grace and love of God in experience and types, 
And these realities become all the clearer in the New Testament. Similarly, the Old Testament displays the righteous wrath of God in experience and types, and these realities become all the clearer in the New Testament. In other words, both God's love and God's wrath are ratcheted up in the move from the Old Testament to the New. These themes barrel along through redemptive history, unresolved, unresolved, until they come to a resounding climax in the cross. Do you wish to see God's love? Look at the cross. Do you wish to see God's wrath? Look at the cross. If there's one place where God's love and God's wrath come together, it is at the cross. Where Old Testament and New Testament misconceptions come together, it's at the cross. Jesus wasn't that terrified of being nailed to wood. Think about this for a minute. We know many Christian martyrs have died since Jesus. Some of them singing while they were killed, praises to God. Some of them mocking their persecutors. Some of them thanking the people who were killing them for bringing them closer to God. One martyr I read about, actually, as he was being flayed alive, skinned alive in India, thanked his persecutors for taking off his old corruptible garments because he was going to get new, heavenly, incorruptible garments at the resurrection. I don't know how you do that. That is amazing. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was in the garden and he was crying out to God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Why would Jesus be sweating blood in the garden when these other martyrs somehow are doing fine? It's because what Jesus bore was not just the nails on the cross. What he bore, if you've been around scum, you know this. He bears the cup of the wrath of the fury of God from the beginning of time until the end. Every sin that was ever committed by anybody, whether it's you or Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or Genghis Khan, it doesn't matter. All of us, he had to drink it all. All of that wrath, all of that fury, all of that indignation, he had to drink to the last drop until at last he said, it is finished. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was the cry of a man who had experienced intimate connection with the Holy Father. And that was the first time in Jesus' entire ministry we ever hear him not call God Father. Because there is now a separation taking place. Jesus is literally going to hell in our place. If you want to see the place where God's wrath and God's love come together, it's at the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son 
that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe sometimes you've heard the other misconception that God is the heavy and Jesus is the goodness and light. God is the bad cop. Jesus is the good cop. God shows us the wrath. Jesus shows us the love. That is not true. John 3.16 says, Who sent Jesus? God. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. It doesn't hold. This is something that God, the Trinity, wanted to do from the very, very beginning. In agreement. In perfect unity. In perfect triunity. To come and to have the place in history where God's righteous wrath, which must be fulfilled, meets God's love and mercy. It's the cross. Right there. Right there. Where God's love and God's wrath meet. Only the one, only the person who is prepared to own his or her own share of the guilt of the cross may claim his or her share in its grace. So says Kenan Peter Green. Only those who are prepared to own their share in the guilt of the cross may claim their share in its grace. In a little while, we're going to take communion. And what you do when you take communion is you admit your share in the guilt of the cross so that you may also receive your share of the grace of God. The Old Testament God is not a God of wrath. The New Testament God is not a God of love. The Old Testament God is a God of love and a God of wrath. And the New Testament God is a God of love and a God of wrath. One and the same. Don't change. God in the Old Testament is exalted. He is portrayed as incomprehensible. Who can know him? Moses is the first one to ever hear his name. He is holy, meaning he is set apart. He is holy other. He is different than us. As my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, as the heavens are above the earth, the Lord says. He's majestic. He's the creator God. He's the king and the judge of the world. He's the kind of God, he is so holy that when we get near him, we've got to take our shoes off just to be in his presence. We have to be like little children. When he comes to Isaiah the prophet, a great man of God, Isaiah said, Woe is me, I'm I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. It's like, shut your mouth. The Lord is coming. There is nothing you can say. He is shown in all of his height in the Old Testament. This is what I'm grateful to the Old Testament for. It shows God in His great height. How holy, majestic, and incomprehensible He is. And you know why I like that? Because it doesn't allow me to be proud. 
I can't exalt myself higher than the God that I read in the Old Testament. And if you don't read the Old Testament, you don't get that perspective. Another thing the Old Testament does is it shows God in all of His depth. In all of His depth. God is portrayed as a long-suffering husband to an adulterous, wayward wife. Hosea the prophet. If you've never read that book, God appoints a prophet to marry a woman whom he knows is going to cheat on him. The reason God says, Hosea, I want you to marry this woman is because I want everybody to see how I love my people, even though they keep going after other gods. Idolatry is seen as spiritual sexual relations. God loves us like a long-suffering husband. And this theme is picked up in Jeremiah. It's picked up in Ezekiel. God loves us like, like a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, one of those that's read all the time, is in the Old Testament. It shows us the depth of the love of God is what the Old Testament does. The Old Testament also shows us how wide is God's view and God's care for everything. It's all-encompassing care for us. He cares about government in the Old Testament. Jesus maybe talks about government one time. God cares about the economy. He cares about people not being too rich and oppressing the poor. He cares about people taking care of the foreigner and the alien within the country. He cares about the economy. He cares about politics, about rulers who do the right thing and the just thing. He cares about religion and that is done correctly and rightly. People aren't taken advantage of. He cares about politics and nations. What do I get out of the wide love of God in the Old Testament? Is that I can't over-spiritualize things. I can't just go to church on Sunday and then forget about how I live the rest of the time. I didn't mention this before. What I get out of the depth of God's love in the Old Testament? There's no such thing as cheap grace. I know. I've had many friends who have had spouses be unfaithful. And I've seen the agony that they go through when that happens. There's something precious. There's something you can't buy in the faithfulness of a spouse who has been cheated upon. There's no such thing as cheap grace. So his height prevents me from being proud. His depth prevents me from assuming that grace is cheap. His wideness prevents me from over-spiritualizing God. And then the Old Testament talks about the length of the love of God. How perseverant he is, how patient he is, how long-suffering he is. You see God working through the history of the human race 
from before the nation of Israel until after the nation of Israel, working with them over and over and over again, never giving up, always being faithful. And that gives me hope and that, that God will not give up on me. God's wrath, folks, is proof that he is not breaking covenant with us in the Old Testament. You don't get mad. You don't get angry with someone you don't care about. You just don't. One of the things I love about my wife is that she would bring things up when she was upset about things. And all of a sudden, I had to work on them whether I wanted to or not. Normally, I did not want to. But it was proof that she loved me. There's a couple who was in a marriage counselor's office and they're having some minor squabbles and all of a sudden the wife breaks down and goes off saying, you know, for 14 years you've never ever taken me and the kids to my parents' house for Thanksgiving even though they're only a few hours away. And she got pissed and she got angry. He'd never seen that before. And the counselor asked him why that was and this was the husband's response. I had no idea it meant that much to her. God's wrath lets us know that He's invested, that He's involved with us, that He's not giving up on us. Apathy is the opposite of love, not anger. Why does God get angry in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Ingratitude, idolatry, disobedience, injustice, disbelief, blood and violence, pride, disrespect for his holiness. But certainly we can't find a lot of examples of God's wrath in the New Testament, can we? Well, just listen. Matthew 18. Jesus tells a, a few stories. I'm just going to tell you the ends of the stories. Okay. Matthew 26, Matthew 18, Matthew 22. Just listen. Matthew 25. Matthew uh, recorded these things that Jesus said. Thank God for Matthew. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's the end of the story from Matthew 18. Matthew 22, the end of the story goes like this. Then the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound anything but angry to me. Here's the end of the story in Matthew 25. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It doesn't sound like a very good place. 
And here's the end of the story from Matthew 25. Different story Jesus is telling. Just so you know, these are all different stories Jesus is telling. And this is the one about the judgment, where he separates the uh, sheep from the goats. And this is what he says to the goats. Jesus says this to the goats. Jesus is quoting himself in the future. Okay? This is what I will say. So now we're talking about sweet baby Jesus. All right? Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I mean, I haven't got to Revelation 16 yet. All right? Revelation 16, there are not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven bowls of God's wrath that are poured out on the earth. So don't tell me that the God of the New Testament is a God of love and the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath because he's both in both. You know what? The truth of the matter is, in some ways, down deep inside, we want him to be both a God of love and a God of wrath. We want that. Because we see things that need to be corrected. We see injustices that should be brought to justice. We see murderers who should be sentenced. I'm going to play a song for you now. One of my favorite artists, most people know this, a guy named Randy Stonehill. He's been to Scum, actually, in years past. He's the guy who wrote the song, the theme song for Compassion International, Who Will Save the Children? It's just one of those plaintive songs that tear your heart out and you're thinking about all the little kids who don't have enough to eat and you do and it's like who will help the children you know we are jesus hands we are jesus feet and so he wrote this song became their theme song it's written a few songs about his experiences with compassion international and then the last song that he wrote was kind of a departure it if who will save the children is about the love of God, then can hell burn hot enough is about the wrath of God. Let's play that, okay? Lyrics should be up on the screen. 
2 Peter 3 says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this second coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 
But they deliberately forgot that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. And let me add, but those of us who have received the free gift of eternal life from the Lamb will be spared. And not only spared, we will be ushered into eternal dwellings to enjoy God forever. When we take communion, we celebrate the coming together of God's wrath and God's love. And we proclaim ourselves as part of Jesus' family. We are guilty men. We are guilty women. We all understand that every second of the day. And we thank God for the mercy he has given us in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you've never made that decision. Tonight you have an opportunity. While you're in the line, waiting to come and break off a bit of the bread which is his body and dip it into the cup which is the blood of his forgiveness for sins. Commit yourself to God tonight and say, I am yours. I'm a man, I'm a woman who deserves nothing but your wrath. But by the grace of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross, I receive your love. Amen. Come on forward. There should be some, uh, a station here on the right, a station on the left, I believe, and one upstairs in the balcony. Also, there will be prayer. If you are a person who would like to pray about the kinds of things you've just heard, there will be some folks in the prayer room. Just take communion, and after communion, go back there and pray. If you feel like you need to pray before you take communion, then do it in reverse order. God bless.